If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's a joint history. It belongs to all of us. It's critical and sacred to black people, but it is a shared history. That was David Oshuga talking about black British history. There is an amazing history in this family of children just being left behind with no obvious explanation for this. And that was Linda Porter discussing the children of Charles I. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of November 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Our first interview this week is with David Olashoga, a historian, author and broadcaster whose latest book, Black and British, A Forgotten History, is published today, the 3rd of November, and charts the long connection between the history of this country and the people of Africa. The book accompanies a BBC Two series of the same name, which is due to air next week. David paid a visit to our Bristol offices a little while back, where he spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton. You write in the book that it's a kind of experiment. Uh, In what ways is that the case? Black British history... Well, black history came to Britain in part from an American model. And it was about, largely, it was about uncovering deliberately hidden stories and forgotten stories, recovering lost black figures and black communities. And we've done that done it really well. Some very brilliant historians, Jim Walvin, Peter Fryer, have done that groundwork of exhuming these lost black figures, finding these lost communities. To me, the next stage of black history is to integrate that into what we call mainstream or what we call British history. Black history can't just be a specialist subject. It can't be a little clearing in the historical forest that only black people want to go to and that's only about black people. It's about a relationship. It's about contact. Some of it's tragic. Some of it's more heartwarming. Some of it's extremely difficult history that we struggle to come to terms with. Some of it, believe it or not, is more optimistic. Um, But it's a history that affects all of us. It is British history. Mm. And there's a risk of seeing black history as a specialist subject only about and only for black people. Mm. You also write 
that there's a lot of black history that Britain has somehow managed to forget. How, how has that happened? That seems remarkable. But well, it... to, defend, to defend those early... Well, I don't need to defend them because they're my heroes. Um, the first generations of black British history, the first generations of historians writing black British history, they were faced with mainstream history books that would talk about the 18th century and not mention slavery, which is like talking about the 19th century and not mentioning steam or coal. It was ludicrous. We have had military histories, naval histories that didn't mention uh, our impact on other parts of the world, all the multiracial nature of the British Navy at various times in its history. A lot of the work they were doing was trying to put the black people back into the picture. And some of that work still remains to be done. A lot of black British history is hidden in plain view in the centre of London, in Trafalgar Square, in sight of the National Gallery, Buckingham Palace, the Houses of Parliament, are the brass reliefs of Nelson's column, on which is depicted a black sailor with a musket towering over the prone body of the dying Nelson. Now, he was included in that brass relief, which was made out of uh, brass from French cannons, not because the Georgians... I should say the early Victorians, not because the Victorians were politically correct or because they were worrying about tokenism or they felt, well, we must have a black person in there for, for quotas or something like that. He was included in that image because there were hundreds of black sailors at Trafalgar. They were there. They were part of the history. It's not a separate history. It's right in the centre of our capital city in a national memorial to one of the most important battles in our history. Black sailors fought at Trafalgar. They knew it then. Everybody knew it then. It was just part of history then. The risk is it becomes lost or it becomes seen just as black history. That's British history. Mm. But in many ways that we've, we've, taken the, we've taken the black history out of mainstream history. Hence that important and necessary work of the early first generation of exhuming this lost history because sometimes it was edited out, sometimes accidentally, sometimes deliberately. I think, to me, as someone who grew up in the north of Britain, the great example is the Industrial Revolution. I was from the northeast. We went to mills and to factories and mines and to heritage sites, and we were told that this history of the north, this history of the Industrial Revolution, was your history. It belonged to me because my mother was, was white British working class, and I had a tenure in this history. But when I went to those mills and when I heard about the Industrial Revolution, and I was told about spinning jennies and water frames. No one ever mentioned that the cotton in those mills came from the deep south of the United States, and it was produced by 1.8 million black enslaved people who are part of British history. They never set foot on British soil, but they spent their lives, they exhausted their bodies, they were beaten and whipped to produce the raw material for Britain's Industrial Revolution. Cotton and cotton clothing, cloth, thread was our biggest export. It's estimated at the beginning of the Civil War that about 20% of the British population was somehow economically dependent on cotton. That's British history. Mm. Now that fails both, that falls through the cracks of both forms of history because it's not about black people in Britain and settlement. It's not seen as black British history and it's been conveniently forgotten within mainstream history. Black British history has to be global. It has to be intercontinental. It has to be triangular, like the triangular slave trade. It took place in Britain, it took place in Africa, and it took place in the Americas. It has to be a global history. We were an empire. Mm. We're not America. America's black history 
can take place within the continental United States, in part because America was a continental empire within itself. American slavery took part took place on the soil of America. The slave markets were in America. Our history is, by its nature, imperial. It's global. Our black British history has got to be global and imperial as well. Heading back uh, far in history, then, I mean, what do we know about uh, kind of Roman history in this aspect, I suppose, in this respect? One of the accusations that's often raised at people who write and study black British history is that this is really a post-war history and you guys, for politically correct reasons, are trying to push it back and imagine this long trail, this deep roots within British history. People have been saying that since the 1950s. It's a constant refrain about black British history. But the reality is, is that if it was imperialism that brought Britain into contact with Africa... Britain itself was once a colonial province of another empire, the Roman Empire. The same force that took us to Africa in the 1550s under the Tudors was the force that took Afro-Romans to Britain. We were colonised long before we became colonisers. And among the army that colonised and that occupied Britain were people from across the Roman Empire, which included Africans, North Africans, but also people from below the Sahara, people who seeped through the porous borders of the Roman Empire. We know they were there. Their remains have been in anonymous storage in local collections across Britain for decades. What's happening is there is a revolution in archaeology, radioisotope dating, which is testing, sorry, radioisotope testing, which is allowing us to determine where the remains of ancient populations grew up, where they were when they formed physically, when they were young people, not necessarily where they were born, but where they grew up. That is showing not just that there were black people in Britain who were of African descent or who were born in Africa, but that there were black people who grew up and probably were born in Britain. The first black Britons were there in the third century. Mm -hmm. Black people got to Britain about a millennia before the first Tudor explorers got to the coast of West Africa. That's not surprising. It shouldn't be surprising. It also shouldn't be controversial. It shouldn't be seen as something that threatens people with a um, a certain view of British history, because that's inevitable. We were a province of the Roman Empire, and that empire was intercontinental. That's not a challenge or an assault on a mainstream view of history. It's an enriching of British history. Um, heading forward in time, then, you mentioned there the explorers. How should we understand expeditions from Britain to Africa in, in this wider context, I suppose? I think one of the Mistakes that we've often made, and I think I've been guilty of this myself, in talking and writing and making programmes about black British history, is that I think we've been so aware that the history of slavery has been understated, underwritten, and not explored enough, that we've often been in a rush to get to the Atlantic slave trade, to talk about this taboo, difficult, controversial subject. And we've missed out the first stage, because in the first stage of contact between Britain, or I should say England and Scotland at that point, and Africa, West Africa, the commodity that the English and the Scottish were after was not enslaved Africans, it was gold. Africa was always understood to be a land of gold because Africa, West Africa is full of gold mines. Centuries later, we discovered that South Africa, the southern part of Africa, is also full of gold. We all know now that Africa is unbelievably blessed with mineral resources. That's one of its great problems, is that yeah. we fight over those and those resources have been a curse more than a blessing. But people in the... Middle Ages knew that as well. Africa was always understood as a land of gold. When the Portuguese first got a grip, or I should say a foothold, in West Africa, 
they knew it was about gold, the river of gold, the mythical river of gold. They knew that there was gold in Africa, and they knew it because for centuries the Arab traders had been bringing it across the Sahara on the caravans. By getting to West Africa, the Portuguese outmaneuvered, outflanked the Islamic world and got direct access to the gold fields. And the English and the Scottish were desperate to get in there, try to elbow the Portuguese, who were much better mariners at that point and more powerful in many ways, elbow them aside and get access to the gold trade of Africa, the legendary, mythical, immensely profitable gold trade of Africa. This was in the imaginations in the, and in the hearts of mariners, explorers, traders across Europe. Africa was this land of riches. We've come to see Africa as this troubled, benighted continent. It was a continent of unbelievable potential and promise mm. to our ancestors. They didn't see it the way we see it now. And that's the problem with all of black British history. We have to remember... We mustn't go into it imagining that our ancestors saw Africa and Africans in the way that we do now, mm. after slavery, after the scramble for Africa. How, how were black people seen in Britain in the 17th century? In the 17th century, there's all sorts of developing ideas of human racial difference, though the idea of race is only just being formed. Again, it's not how we understand it. I think... Thinking about the 16th centuries in some ways more interesting because at that point what you have is you have a medieval mindset that is fascinated by the colours black and white and their contrast and their extremes where blackness is associated with all sorts of diabolical devilish things, the night superstition, magic and whiteness is associated with purity and virginity. Human blackness is an immensely exciting, exotic and erotic challenge to that colour aesthetic. But also, again, Africans are associated with the wealth of their continent. So there's all sorts of ways in which when slavery is not the dominant relationship between Europeans and Africans, that Africans are seen as challenging to European ideas. And then, of course, there are the accounts of travel writers. Now, we call them travel writers. I mean, they're this is not reportage. This is in some ways the regurgitation of often classical myths or medieval myths. They, they muddy the waters by presenting Europeans with pictures of Africa as a land full of monsters, monstrous races of humanity, mythical creatures as well as real creatures, and Africans are being extremely different to Europeans. So there is a nervousness, a discomfort, but also an extremely exciting and exotic attraction to Africans. Now, we know where this goes. We know how ideas of human inferiority based on skin colour develop. They don't develop instantly. It takes a long, long time. In the period before slavery, before the Atlantic slave trade, before Britain is predominant in the Atlantic slave trade, there's a much more complicated and I think more interesting relationship. You write in the book about John Blank. Um, what's his story and what does that tell us about wider situations, I suppose? Well, I think John Blank is almost sacred to, if that's not saying too much, to black people in Britain, or should be, because he is the first black Briton, first black resident of this country, who not only we have a name for, but we can see his face. He is depicted in the Westminster tournament role of 1511, on two occasions, two pictures of him, two paintings of him in the Tudor court. He's somebody we know about because of his association with power. Because he was close to power, his life was recorded in documents, but also miraculously in an image, two images painted of him. We don't know that much about him, and we probably never will. But we do know that there was a fashion for black musicians 
across Europe, in Scotland, in the Medici courts and other courts in, in Renaissance Italy. And we know that John Blank was someone who was skilled, who was valued, who was relatively well paid. And from his life and lives of other Black Tudors, we see people who are living at various strata in society, various social classes, as we call it now. Um, none of them are very rich, but that some of them are certainly not poor. Mm. What I think a lot of people have presumed, and understandably perhaps, is that all black people in Britain, when we discover their lives or their remains, must have been slaves. We know that this is not the case for many of the black tutors. A lot of them are servants. A lot of them are people with specialist skills from Europe who've come into the Iberian world, um, such as John Blank. But they're not enslaved people. There's a risk we project what happens later on earlier periods. Mm. This is the 16th century. It's not the 18th century. Mm. You talked there about um, black people being involved in entertainment, yeah. which is a theme throughout the book, isn't it? It is. Black people have, from John Blank onwards, seem to have been attracted to or maybe perhaps conscripted into the world of entertainment. And uh, one way of thinking about John Blank and the picture of him on the Westminster tournament role with his trumpet is that he is the sort of godfather of all black British musicians. He's the first of the first of the, uh, of the black British entertainers. But because of exoticism, because black people were rare, they were often able to use their their rareness, um, their their exoticism, to make careers for themselves in entertainment. And we have this right through into the twentieth century and into the twenty first century. And there is there another you know, great history. Some of it's disturbing to us because some of it's about exploitation. There's no question about that. But it's also about entrepreneurship and people who were able to to use their skills and to some extent play on their, their racial identity to make themselves into these exotic stage personas. My favourite character in this history is Pablo Fanke, who was... Uh, Victorian. He was a black Victorian whose real name was William Darby. He was born in, in Norwich. Not the most exotic, exciting beginning to life, if people in Norfolk can, can forgive me for saying that. But he forms himself, he creates himself into this circus entrepreneur and performer called Pablo Franchi, who is this wildly skilled performer of dancing horses. And he does other stage acts. And he isn't just a performer, he's an entrepreneur. He runs and owns his own circus. And he's famous in that circus, not just for his skills, for the the wondrous entertainments that he offered, but because he was also a philanthropist. And he did many, many performances that were in the benefit or for the benefit of retiring circus performers or to poor people in the town he was performing for. One of those was for the benefit of someone called Mr. Kite. And in the 1960s, the Beatles were recording the videos for... Strawberry Fields and uh, Penny Lane. John Lennon went to an old antique shop and bought a poster which advertised a performance of Pablo Fanke's circus in the benefit of Mr Kite. And that became the lyrics of the Beatles songs being for the benefit of Mr Kite. So this black Victorian is in Sergeant Peppers. He's part of 1960s cultural history. Now, I don't know. I've asked someone who knows... Paul McCartney, a journalist, if you'll ask him one day. I don't know whether Paul McCartney and John Lennon knew that the man whose name is in this song, Sergeant Peppers, was a black Victorian. But sometimes it doesn't matter. He is he was very famous in his day, and now he is secretly famous, if you could if that's if that's possible to be possible to be. He is 
He's there in a song millions and millions, well, billions of people have heard across the world being for the benefit of Mr. Guide, Mr. Pablo Frankie's circus. It is word for word almost his stage show of the middle of the 19th century. Are there any difficulties in researching this subject? I think there's some inherent problems with black British history. One of the most challenging is gender bias, is that um, most of the people that we know who lived in Britain, most of the early black Britons, were men. There's lots of reasons for that. The reasons that would bring black people to Britain were they were in the Navy, obviously male. They were in the Army, again, obviously male. The slave trade itself biased towards men because men were of more value on the plantations. So more black men were transported from Africa into the British sphere of influence and more of them, especially little boys in the 18th century, were brought over as servants. For all sorts of reasons, there is a, there's more black British men than black British women throughout much of this history because it's military, because it's to do with slavery, um, because it's about migration. It's more possible throughout much of this history for a black African man to decide that he wants to go and leave or wants to go, or a Caribbean man who wants to come to Britain than it was for their, their sisters. So trying to find the voices and the, um, the experiences of black British women or of black women within black history um, in the British Empire is more difficult, difficult and more challenging. But there are some very notable black women who are part of this history. I mean, I think now a lot of people know about Mary Seacole, this book and this television series is also going to, I hope, bring more people to know Sarah Forbes Bonetta, who was um, an African girl who was saved from slavery by uh, a British officer of the West Africa Squadron, whose job it was to suppress the slave trade and negotiate with local African chiefs to try and persuade them to abandon the slave trade. She was given to Captain Forbes of the West Africa Squadron as a gift for Queen Victoria. And she was brought up under the protection of Queen Victoria. She wasn't part of her family, but she was part of what the Victorians would call a household. She was um, under the care, under the protection. Her bills were paid for by, the, by, by Queen Victoria. This is a black woman who is at the centre of the British Empire, who is in the court, who's meeting the Queen on multiple occasions, who is, who's, it seems likely that her marriage was arranged by Queen Victoria. She married a um, Nigerian businessman. Black women and black men got swept up, got incorporated into all sorts of parts of British history. It's not just a story of slavery. Mm. We should talk about the slave trade. Mm -hmm. um, are there any ways in which you'd like this book to, we've talked about this a bit, about how it will change people's view of that industry of that trade we've very often i speak here mainly about television what we've tended to focus on is the period in the 18th and early 19th centuries when britain was the predominant slave trading nation in the world and a very very significant and considerable slave owning nation now what do we try to do in this series is to look at, again at an earlier period the period when britain was not dominant when slavery then the slave trade was dominated by the Royal African Company, which was a royal monopoly. What happens in that period, in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, is that ideas of British freedom are being formed at the same time that Britain is becoming a major slave trading power. And there is a desire amongst independent traders, they're called the separate traders, to break into the royal monopoly and to 
use the slave trade to benefit not just the royal family and the entourage around them, but traders across Britain in cities like Bristol, Liverpool, Glasgow. And they use an argument of freedom. They argue that they needed to be free to become slave traders, that their freedoms to enslave other people and strip them of their freedoms were being curtailed by the royal monopoly. And in the name of freedom, the royal monopoly should be scrapped and all Englishmen should be free to become slave traders. Almost that slave trading was a natural-born right of free-born Englishmen. That period of the royal monopoly, that period of the battle around the Royal African Company, its monopolies, to me is one of the missing links in understanding how slavery didn't just challenge British ideas of freedom, it was part of their evolution. The historian William A. Pettigrew has been critical in challenging our ideas about about looking at this idea of British freedom, looking at this ultimate contradiction that the nation that saw itself as the most committed to freedom in the world, a nation that valued freedom and liberty more than any other nation, became the dominant nation that stripped the freedom of millions of Africans. That contradiction has to rumble through British history because it's such an enormous contradiction. Mm. Mm. Are there any episodes or stories that particularly surprised you? I think we've forgotten how proud people in this country were at abolition. Now, we've often overstated abolition. We've wanted to talk more about abolition than we have about slavery. But there isn't a period in the 1830s and the 1840s when opposition to slavery is seen as part of what it is to be British. It's seen as a British characteristic. Millions of people sign petitions against slavery. And Britain does go out to West Africa to try to suppress the slave trade. Now, all of these things can be exaggerated because the effort to suppress the slave trade was never, ever nearly enough to what was needed if Britain had been seriously interested in ending the Atlantic slave trade. But the British do come to see themselves and look down on other nations through this experience of abolition, and especially America. In the 1840s and 1850s in particular, Britain looks at America as a country that still has, a, still has slavery, that holds millions of Africans in bondage, in brutal and cruel bondage, and it becomes part of the way the two countries see each other. And I think the most surprising element of that, and I think something which really is a bit of black British history that's been forgotten, is that when the book Uncle Tom's Cabin is published, it is more popular in Britain than it is in America. It is the most successful Victorian novel. Now, because it's not by Dickens or Thackeray, Wilkie Collins. We don't think of it as a Victorian novel because it was written by an American. It's also a deeply troubling and problematic book full of racial stereotypes that I'm uncomfortable with and everyone's right to be uncomfortable with. But the reason why 1.5 million copies of that book were sold in Britain and the Empire is because Britain had come to see itself as a nation for whom abolition was part of its national makeup and its character. Because this book is now in some ways, rightly toxic to us. We've not wanted to ask the question, why was it so popular in Britain? But that's also been part of an other ways in which we've forgotten how Britain was obsessed with black Americans in the middle of the 19th century. Among the most popular music forms was black minstrelsy music. Now, that's not black music. That's white people blacked up playing a distorted um lampooning form of black music but it was its origins are black music from the south the banjo is an original african-american instrument and it was enormously popular in britain and minstrel music was enormously popular in britain and for generations british people brought up were brought up reading uncle tom's cabin as the most successful book of the century 
am going to see minstrel shows on stage. Black America, distorted, racialized, disfigured in lots of ways, was part of how, for generations, British people saw black people and saw, saw America. Difficult history, uncomfortable history. Those songs and those, you know, I don't look at guys blacked up and feel anything other than discomfort. But that is part of our history. And it also explains another phenomenon, which was I was a little boy growing up in this country when we finally ended the Black and White Minstrel Show. And I remember wondering, where the hell did that come from? Well, it comes from the 1830s when Thomas G. Rice brings his, his Jim Crow show to London. And it is as popular in Britain as it is in America. Minstrelsy and Uncle Tom, part of the Victorian landscape. When we think of the Victorian street, we have to not just think of music hall. We need to think of the bands, the minstrel bands that were performing all over British cities. That was part of the, the, the musical landscape of, of our ancestors' worlds. Now, when I was writing this book, I wrote a chapter about minstrelsy. And my mother, because I'm dyslexic, proofread it for me. And she knew all of those songs. Now, I had to listen to those songs and look them up. She knew all of those songs. She knew those songs because her grandmother had sung them to her when she was a little girl. And my grandmother's parents were obviously around in the late 19th century when the Christie minstrels and the, um, the Ethiopian serenaders were touring Britain. And these songs were ubiquitous. Everyone knew these songs. And my grandmother sat her daughter, white family from the north on her knee, and sang these minstrel songs to a little girl who was going to marry an African and have mixed-race children. My mother knew all of the words to all of those songs, some of which are horribly racist but beautiful melodies because they were part of my grandparents and my great-grandparents' British culture. Uh, what's the best way for black people to study their own history and history in general? We're in a... We're in a real moment of change in this country, and yet some things have remained the same very depressingly. Disadvantages. We know from reports from this year that racial disadvantage remains just as bad as it was when I was growing up for young black people. But the nature of the black community is changing. There's an awful lot of intermarriage that the black community has, especially the Caribbean community, has intermarried enormously with white people with Indian people. There's a lot more Africans now in Britain. We know that in the first decade of this century, that for the first time, probably since the 18th century, the number of most black people in this country now came directly from Africa and not from the New World. That's a huge demographic shift, as is the racial mixing. What this means is in all sorts of ways is that black British history needs to be more global, but also it does affect more and more people. Every black person, every interracial couple is part of two extended families. There are millions of white people for whom black and mixed-race people are now part of their families. They have cousins and sisters and mothers-in-laws and father-in-laws. That, when black people first arrived in large numbers after the Second World War and were, because of a wave of racism, forced into a siege mentality where what was important was that we recovered our lost history, showed that our roots in this country and in this empire were deep and long and important. That's still really important, but there's another moment now where we need to see this as a shared history. It affects many, many people. I've, I've talked to audiences who look like they everyone's white, and I felt saddened by that. And then I've discovered afterwards that their families are integrated and global and mixed race, and that they have mixed race children or black son-in-laws or daughter-in-laws. 
this idea that black history is only about and only for black people, only of interest to black people, that's breaking down. We've gone too far. We're too integrated. Our stories are too conjoined now for that idea. So I think it's for everybody to look into. It's a fascinating history. And it's not a challenge to mainstream history. It's not trying to rubbish mainstream history. It's trying to say black people and our stories are part of that mainstream history. When we want to talk about slavery, the brutality of slavery, the brutality of the slave trade, the rebellions of the, of the enslaved that were critical to the ending of the slave trade, that's not to say that abolitionism and the abolitionists didn't matter. There's lots of people in this story who I think are white heroes of black history. A lot of them have views I find extremely troubling. A lot of them saw the world and saw human difference through the prism of their times, and they have have views I find reprehensible. But their actions often, I think, are extremely impressive. And I think we need to see people like Granville Sharp, a white civil servant and amateur musician who spends 50 years of his life campaigning against slavery as a white hero of black history, and somebody who is critical to the history of black people and white people. He's, you know, a, a national hero. I think what's often happened is because there has been a reflex action in this country that let's just pretend this didn't happen. Let's not look in this history. Let's brush the whole thing under the carpet because it's difficult, because it's uncomfortable, because some of it is so dark and upsetting that we've forgotten that within that there are some heroes. There are some good people as well as some bad people, heroes as well as villains. There are a few moments in this history where we could feel positive about ourselves. And that's not to say that this country hasn't got a long way to go to accept what slavery was, the role that Britain played into it, how central it was to our development, our economic development, and the same with with imperialism. But we also need to see it as a joint history. There's no one alive today who was a slave trader or a slave owner or who was involved in a punitive raid in the Age of Empire. There is no guilt of the forefathers, but this is our shared history, and some of it's extremely unpleasant, and we need to confront it for the health of all of us. And I think we are a big enough, a strong enough, and a, a, a big enough and a strong enough country to come to terms with our history, and all of it, and the dark as well as the light, the good as well as the bad. And we're missing out if we don't. It's not sustainable to pretend these things didn't happen. Too many people are connected to these parts of the world, are connected, are parts of these communities in all sorts of different ways now. This idea that black history is only about and only for black people, that doesn't work in my family. My mother, married an African, had six mixed-race children. She's part of black British history. She was a young woman in the 60s when her and my father couldn't get a house to live in that they were turned away. She's lived with her mixed-race children when our house was attacked and we'd driven out of our home. My mother has tended, literally, my wounds when I had been beaten up by racists in Britain in the 1980s. To say that my mother is not part of black British history is ridiculous. It's a joint history. It belongs to all of us. It's critical and sacred to black people, but it is a shared history. That was David Olashoga. Black and British, A Forgotten History is out now in the UK, published by Macmillan. In the US, it's also now available for the Kindle.
The BBC Two series, also entitled Black and British, A Forgotten History, begins on Wednesday the 9th of November at 9pm. And you can read more from Matt and David in the December issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale. This month's edition includes articles on Edward I, the murder of Rasputin, the Klondike gold rush, medieval cities and plenty more. You can get hold of our December issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. David Olashoga is also one of the speakers at our York History Weekend, which is taking place from the 18th to 20th of this month. There are still a few tickets available for his talk, and some of the others, and you can find out more details and book tickets at historyweekend.com. Our second interview this week is with the acclaimed history author Linda Porter. Her new book, Royal Renegades, explores the fates of Charles I's many children after his execution in 1649. Linda spoke to our deputy editor, newly returned from maternity leave, Charlotte Hodgman. So, Linda, perhaps it's it's best to start at the very the very beginning um, with Charles and Henrietta's marriage. Um, it, it got off to a fairly rocky start um, by the sounds of it in your book, and wasn't quite the love match that it, it eventually became. Um, I mean, how did relations improve be- between the couple? Well, relations didn't really improve between Charles I and Henrietta Maria until after the death of the Duke of Buckingham, when he was assassinated. Um, in 1628 and down in Portsmouth by an outraged um, former officer of the army uh, who felt that he was uh, owed money. Um, This immediately um, brought the royal couple together in in a way that had not really been possible before. I mean, I think she was maturing a little into the marriage by then and she immediately went to comfort her husband, um, because Buckingham had been very close to Charles I, um, both before and after Charles became king. Uh, And uh, uh, Charles seems to have appreciated her concern, I suppose you would say. Uh, And thereafter, they progressively and quite quickly became um, more or less inseparable. I mean, she was very young, wasn't she, when she when she came to England from France um, to marry Charles? She she was 15, yes. And uh, Although quite a self-possessed teenager, she had no real experience of the outside world. Um, she'd never been outside France. Uh, she'd grown up very much under the thumb of her dominating mother, Marie de Medici. And, and she was going to a country which, as far as she was concerned, was full of heretics. Uh, uh, and she she set off, as, as I explain in the book, with a, a letter from her mother saying, you are never to forget you are a daughter of the church. And she was given this mission, essentially, of trying to convert her husband to Catholicism, if she possibly could, uh, a mission in which she never succeeded, it has to be said. Uh, I think she realised fairly soon that it wasn't a starter as far as he was concerned. But uh, no, the um, I think the combination of Henrietta's immaturity and the fact that she was in a, a foreign land, she didn't speak any English. Her husband spoke good French, which was just as well. But he was, for a 25-year-old, um, a, a fairly inexperienced young man as well. He'd, he'd grown up uh, dominated by his father, James I. And, and so not only were they learning about being a 
king and queen, but I think they were also learning about growing up, really, uh, together. And the process wasn't very easy to begin with. He was nearly 10 years older than her. He made no allowances for her lack of understanding and immaturity. And she and her advisors made absolutely no allowances or or neither did they even attempt to sort of accommodate themselves to to being in England and and what her role might profitably be. They had a, a son, didn't they, about is it two or three years after they, they got married? Um, they had a son shortly, well, nine months or so after Buckingham's death, yes. Um, but he was, he was still born. There had been no, um, well, I think he may actually have lived an hour or so, but, but basically, you know, he stood no chance of survival. He was premature. Uh, and uh, really, there had, there had been no pregnancies, um, at least that we know of before then. So it was only in 1629, and she'd been married since 1625, actually. So it's, it's quite a, a long gap um, in which uh, there had been no obvious sign of an heir to the throne of England. And although this first child was not to survive. It at least proved that that she was fertile, that they could have children. And when they tried again quite shortly afterwards, um, they did, of course, produce the future Charles II. And from then on, they had children regularly until the year 1644, in fact. I mean, how did they react to that very first um, pregnancy with the death of of their first son? Did it bring them closer together, do you think? Um, I think they were already quite close by that point. But yes, I think, although there was sadness, it it wasn't viewed as a complete disaster. I mean, Charles I was no Henry VIII in that respect, thank goodness. Um, He was still quite a young man. His wife was even younger. Uh, And they seemed to have taken this as an unfortunate setback rather than a disaster. Uh, And uh, set about doing something to remedy it really quite quickly afterwards. So obviously the future Charles II um, was their first surviving child. Um, he's described as, by his mother as being dark and ugly. Um, what was his relationship like with them both? Um, that's a very good question. Um, for one thing, I think it it changed over time. <laughs> You have to distinguish between different periods of of his um, of his life. As a small child, um, he grew up essentially with his younger brothers and sisters um, until he was about seven or eight years old, and they lived mostly in St James's Palace during the winter, and then either at Richmond or Hampton Court during the summer. And they, they led really a, a charmed life. The the sort of um, uh, illustration that, that's on the front of my book, which is taken from the famous Van Dyke portrait of the five eldest children of, of Charles I. Um, that, I think, epitomizes their relationship at, at the time. Uh, Charles was never very close to his mother. In, indeed, none of the children, except for the very youngest, Princess Henrietta, were. Um, she was a fairly demanding mother. Um, I think with his father, he probably had a closer relationship, um, particularly during the Civil War, when he, as a, as a young man, campaigned with his father until they were uh, separated, when the royalist side started to lose. Uh, and I, I think, therefore, that, that probably the relationship between father and son was better than that between mother and son. 
And at, at the start of the Civil War, so by the start of the Civil War in, in 1642, they the couple actually had five children. Five surviving children, yes, yes. Obviously, the war must have had a, a huge impact on them. You've mentioned how it affected um, Charles. How did it affect the other children? Well, it affected two of them quite dramatically. In fact, it affected all of them dramatically in different ways. Um, when uh, Charles and Henrietta Maria fled from London after his famous attempt in which he tried to arrest the five members of parliament whom he thought were the ringleaders of opposition to him in January 1642, there was an immediate threat perhaps to the queen that she might be arrested because she was extremely unpopular. She was viewed as a a Catholic foreigner who had led her husband astray immediately. Um, Some of that wasn't entirely true, incidentally, but uh, she, she was in a difficult position and Charles obviously feared for her future, if not for his own, at the beginning of 1642. And they, um, I don't think we know precisely how this occurred, but they they obviously went to St. James's Palace, where the, or the, child, the three eldest children were brought from, from St. James's Palace, where they were living to join them. So the three eldest children, Charles, his sister Mary, and his younger brother James, uh, removed immediately from London downriver to Hampton Court with their parents, um, where they all had to sleep in one bed because the royal apartments hadn't been prepared for them. And eventually, Charles I took uh, his eldest son, uh, the future Charles II, with him up north. Um, uh, and for a while, James was with them as well. Uh, they both saw their father raise his standard at Nottingham in, in August 1642. Mary, by that time, was in the Netherlands because at the tender age of nine, she'd been married to Prince William of Orange, who was the the heir to the Royal House of Orange in the Netherlands. And while it had never been intended that she would go and live with her husband at such a a young age, uh, the uh, difficulties that that had overtaken Charles I in England made it, um, well, both perhaps providential and sensible that she go to the Netherlands with her mother. She and her mother left um, within a month or so of these these climacteric events in January 1642. Henrietta Maria went to Holland largely because she wanted to sell the royal jewels and try and get arms and support for her husband there in the struggle which they thought was inevitable by that time. And it was the beginning of a a horribly unhappy life for Mary, really. I mean, she she was a a girl very very much like her father. She was proud and and reticent, and she never accommodated to the the United Provinces of the Netherlands. Um, She thought she was too good for them, essentially. She had a dreadful relationship with her ghastly mother-in-law there, who took again this, this, you know, rather unfortunate young child almost from the outset uh, and and eventually Mary would go on to cohabit with her husband. He was 15 at the time of their marriage uh, and she, she did finally have a child with him though by that time he'd lost any interest he might have had in her. Uh, he died of smallpox, Mary's husband, uh, in 1650, leaving her to give birth shortly after his death. Uh, and throughout the civil wars, therefore, she was, if you like, the first royal exile of the, the civil war. She she didn't come back to England until the year of her death in 1660. James and Charles were with their father for a while in the north of England, though James quite inexplicably was sent back to London after a while to join his younger brother and sister. And Princess Elizabeth and Prince Henry um, 
never left London. Uh, they were left behind in St. James's Palace, whether by accident or design, we we honestly don't really know, I don't think. Uh, and so they remained effectively as hostages to Parliament throughout the civil wars. Uh, they were well treated. They had a, a series of um, aristocratic guardians. Um, by 1645, they were in the care of the 10th Earl of Northumberland, Algernon Percy, who came from a notably rebellious family and had sided with Parliament against the King during the Civil Wars. Uh, and he was their guardian and eventually James's guardian as well when James was uh, returned to London. Uh, Charles kept James with him for a while um, at the Royal Headquarters in Oxford. Uh, by 1645-46, he'd already sent uh, the future Charles II away uh, to the southwest and ultimately to exile in France. Um, but he kept James with him, except that when he decided to leave to uh, hand himself over to the Scottish army in, in Nottinghamshire, he just abandoned James. So the, the, there is an amazing history in this family of children just being left behind with no obvious explanation for this. It's extraordinary. I mean, you, you can't really imagine... That no provision was made for them or they were just left behind? Well, James was left at that stage in 1646 in Oxford with his two cousins, Prince Rupert and Prince Maurice, um, uh, and obviously his his tutors and everything. But um, his father's abandonment of him, I, I think it's fair to say, had a fairly, fairly major effect on him as he grew to adulthood. Um, and he was eventually sent down when Oxford... Uh, surrendered, uh, surrendered to Thomas Fairfax, the Lord General of the Parliamentary Army. He was sent to join his younger brother and sister. So he too come, came under the guardianship of the Earl of Northumberland. Uh, Northumberland was one of the great aristocrats of England at the time. Um, uh, a grandee in the, the sort of old fashioned sense. He had a family of his own. Um, not that long previously, his first wife had died and he'd married again. So he had children from both marriages. And he essentially brought up um, certainly Henry and Elizabeth and for a couple of years, James as well as part of his own family. Uh, James disliked this arrangement. He, he was an extremely rude and difficult person to have under anybody's control, really. Uh, the younger two children, who had never really known any other existence than, than being treated as royalty, but you know, being apart from the rest of the royal family, seemed to have accommodated themselves more to, to living with the Northumberlands and their family. Uh, they enjoyed their brother's company. Um, but of course, when James escaped in 1648, it's almost certain that his, well, possibly Northumberland himself, but certainly his sister Elizabeth was complicit in this because uh, it had been planned for some time that he would try and get away to join his brother and mother in, in France. And indeed, he, he did manage to do so. I mean, Northumberland had, I think, an impossible task. He was responsible for the welfare, education and security of three royal children, one of whom at least was desperate to, to get away from him and tried to make his life as difficult as possible. Uh, and he incurred huge expense as well because the, the children were kept in the manner to which they had been accustomed. They had coaches, they had footmen, um, 
in the archives in Petworth House in in West Sussex, there are accounts of all of the money that that uh, Northumberland had to expend on them, even down to buttons and bootlaces for their postilions and people like that. Is is an amazing reading actually to see this. But uh, so it, the the children were divided, as were many families in the Civil War. Of course, I mean they, they are at the highest level of society. Uh, a very striking example of what happened to families in the English civil wars. They were divided by place, uh, by education, by religion, by allegiance, because the Mary, Henry and Elizabeth were brought up uh, and remained staunchly Protestant. And James and Charles were both brought up as Protestant, um, much to their mother's displeasure, but there wasn't much she could do about it. But of course, eventually they both became Catholic. Um, Charles on his deathbed and, and James con- considerably sooner than that. And and by the time that Charles and James were in exile in France, of course, Henrietta Maria had given birth to a, a final child, Princess Henrietta, in Exeter in 1644. She had left um, Oxford with the uh, armies of Fairfax closing in. And again, there were fears for her safety. She was also extremely unwell in this last pregnancy. And she had been a very attractive young woman. But by this time, although still in her late 30s, she was sort of worn by care and childbearing and, and the, the general difficulties of trying to support her husband. Um, she may have been a rotten mother, but she was a very loyal wife. Uh, and it was thought better that she leave Oxford and give birth. Um, they hoped in Bath or Bristol, but the farther west she went, the more the parliamentary armies sort of um, performed a pincer movement around her. And she was eventually in Exeter in July 1644 when she gave birth to Princess Henrietta, who was christened at her father's um, insistence in Exeter Cathedral um, in a, a Protestant Church of England ceremony, and her mother had to abandon her two weeks later. Um, this is a story of flight and abandonment on a large scale. I, uh, it was thought that Henrietta would probably be put on trial and executed if she was captured by the parliamentary armies. Um, and she fled down through Cornwall, eventually taking ship from Falmouth uh, and finally arriving in France, where to her amazement and delight, her youngest child joined her a couple of uh, years later um, because her redoubtable governess had managed to escape, taking her from outside London, where they were at the time. Exeter, funnily enough, did not fall at the time that Henrietta Maria left it. It, it hung on for nearly another year. And eventually, the little baby princess was es- escorted out of it um, by Fairfax and others, taken to Oatlands in Surrey, which is where many years before Henry VIII had married Catherine Howard, incidentally. And it was from there that her governess, Lady Dalkeith, um, escaped with her on foot, walking all the way to Dover, um, with only um, a sort of male servant for, for company. They dressed the little girl up as a boy um, and said that they were French and she was called Pierre. Uh, and the little girl nearly gave the game away on several occasions by indignantly saying, not Pierre, princess. And everybody thought, oh, what a sweet child. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody actually believed this, um, which was just as well. Um, 
And her mother was, of course, overjoyed when she arrived in France um, and she brought her up as a Catholic against her husband's wishes. Um, and Elizabeth and Henry, um, so obviously when, when Henrietta fled to, to France, she had to leave all her children behind, really. Yes, yeah, she did. Every single one. Yeah. Did they ever see their mother again? Elizabeth didn't. Um, Henry did, though he probably lived to regret it. Elizabeth and Henry had a, a really difficult and harrowing parting from their father. They were in London at the time of Charles I's trial, and he was allowed to see them the night before their, his execution, um, something which I think Elizabeth never got over. Henry was eight and really didn't know his father. Um, he had met him in, in the year 1647 when Charles was essentially taken into the custody of the army. He was brought first to Berkshire before he went to Hampton Court. And in Berkshire, he was allowed to to see his um, youngest children again. James hadn't escaped at that point. So he saw James, Elizabeth and Henry. He hadn't seen Elizabeth since she was a very small girl. And he hadn't seen his youngest son, Henry, Duke of Gloucester, since the child was one year old. Um, and he is supposed to have said to Henry, do you know me, child? To which Henry replied, no. And if then Henry, a year or so later, has to go through this extraordinarily harrowing experience of taking his leave of, of a father he scarcely knew, to be truthful, on the the, the night before Charles's execution. Um, and Charles didn't mince words. He knew that um, consideration had been given to uh, replacing him with Henry as king, because it was thought if you put a a tractable child who'd been well-educated, who was Protestant, who was still a Stuart and was in the country on the throne, there, there might be the possibility that some kind of what we would call constitutional monarchy would work. We don't know the full details of how far advanced this plan was. It seems to have been considered by Cromwell and by a number of others and eventually dismissed in fact, it raised its head again in 1653 when Henry was still in England. Um, but in the end, he he was never offered the throne. Um, uh, the the king, in his parting words to his smallest son, said, "You know, you must not take the throne, even if they try and put the crown on your head, because they will cut your head off with the crown on it. Um, your two brothers, you know, must come before you." Uh, and Henry is supposed to have said he would be torn to pieces first. Um, but Elizabeth, who recorded all of this, was already ill with tuberculosis. She'd been unwell for much of her childhood, actually. Uh, and she was so shattered um, by this last parting from her father that um, she, her health, neither mental or physical, ever really recovered from it. By the time of the king's execution, uh, Northumberland had really had enough of uh, being responsible uh, for these two children, especially since he still had a, a young male steward under his care. And he, he could foresee all sorts of problems of the sort that had arisen with, with Prince James. Um, and he asked to be relieved of his responsibility. Um, and the two children, Elizabeth and her brother Henry, uh, who had grown up together, you know, they really didn't no, apart from Northumberland's children and their brother James, anyone else. Uh, they were sent to Penshurst Place near where I live in Kent uh, in the care of Northumberland's sister, Dorothy Percy, who was married to the 
Earl of Leicester. Uh, and they spent a, a very happy year there. Uh, I mean, nominally, they were supposed to be treated as ordinary citizens. Henry was known as Master Henry Stuart. Um, uh, and Elizabeth was just, you know, Mistress Elizabeth Stuart. But um, the Leicesters treated them with great respect and still allowed them to dine separately. In fact, they were told off for uh, allowing this. Uh, and uh, the Leicesters had quite a large family themselves uh, and were, again, accustomed to, to bring up children in perhaps rather difficult circumstances. And uh, the Elizabeth and Henry were very fond of them um, and would perhaps have been allowed to spend longer with them had not Charles II tried to gain back his kingdom by invading Scotland. And as soon as it was known that he was in the British Isles, the uh, two younger children were moved to the Isle of Wight. Elizabeth protested against this strongly. She had asked several times to be allowed to join her sister Mary in the Netherlands. Um, apparently, she would have been willing to leave her poor little brother behind, but she was about to, to leave him behind permanently because... When they got to the Isle of Wight, um, she had only been there less than a couple of weeks um, when she fell very ill indeed, possibly with pneumonia, but it was a complication of the TB that she already had. And she died there um, in the company of Henry's tutor, his, his loyal tutor, um, Richard Lovell, who stayed with her right to the end. Uh, and she's um, buried in the um, Church of St. Thomas in Newport in the Isle of Wight. Um, and her resting place was left marked only by a small slab in the chancel uh, until Queen Victoria uh, decided to raise a memorial to her distant relative. Uh, and it, it's very beautiful. It was done by a famous uh, Italian sculptor. And it shows Elizabeth um, lying um, in death with a, a Bible close by. Uh, and a, a shattered portcullis, which is supposed to um, illustrate her escape at last. Mm, I mean, I mean, how did her death affect? I mean, the family had lost the had lost Charles the First already. Um, were they were the were the siblings affected by her death? I mean, presumably Charles barely really knew her. Um, Henry certainly was, um, and because he was left alone, except for his tutor, yeah, and. She was the one constant in his life. He'd never really known or remembered life without her. Um, we don't actually know how he reacted. Um, the thing about Henry, I think, he was quite a remarkable young man. He was a very handsome boy, incidentally, is that he was highly intelligent, as was Elizabeth. She had been educated throughout the Civil War to what would be considered, you know, a very high standard of attainment nowadays. And she had a lady tutor which was quite remarkable. Um, a woman called Bathsua Macon, who had a large family of her own and who taught Elizabeth Greek and Latin and mathematics. Elizabeth was a bit of an educational prodigy, really, prodigy. But um, Henry had also, um, uh, obviously, was a boy of quick intelligence. And because of his upbringing, he had learned a, a resilience and an independence of thought, um, which greatly upset his mama when they finally met again because Henry was kept on the Isle of Wight until 1653, possibly because there was still, this is just before the protectorate really, um, some thought that he might 
be a possibility um, to, to be raised um, uh, to, to the kingship if England was to revert to being a monarchy. And eventually, he was allowed to join his sister Mary in the Netherlands, um, but he didn't stay there long because his mother wanted him with her in Paris. Uh, so, much to Mary's regret and to her considerable misgiving, because Mary knew her mother, they never got on very well. And of course, Mary was a Protestant, whereas Henrietta Maria was a Catholic. Uh, Mary foresaw it to some degree what would happen to Henry when he got to Paris. And when he got to Paris, his mother announced herself delighted with her little cavalier and proceeded to try and convert him to Catholicism. And this wasn't done in any subtle way. It, it was extraordinarily heavy-handed. He was removed from Mr. Lovell, the tutor he'd known for much of his life, sent to a Catholic seminary at Pontoise, north of Paris, and there found himself torn between this mother that he hardly knew and an elder brother, Charles II, whom he'd only met briefly. Charles was no longer in Paris at that time. His French hosts, um, particularly Cardinal Mazarin, had made their peace with Cromwell and it wasn't politic for Charles II to stay there. So he was actually in the Low Countries in Brussels and Bruges for, for a while. From uh, where he sent his little brother anguished notes, essentially saying, if you convert to Catholicism, I will never regain my throne. You know, you are under explicit instructions not to do this. Uh, Henrietta Maria, meanwhile, um, summoned her youngest son, who was then a boy of 15, and said to him, if you don't convert, I will never see you again. And he told her he could not. And so she sent him away and she did never see him again. Gosh, so he was really, really torn between the two of them, really. I think he probably was. You've got to remember, as, as you yourself alluded to earlier on, it, he'd never really known his family. The only family he knew was Elizabeth and she'd been gone several years at that stage. And he had had, because of his circumstances, to become independent, uh, and his mother didn't like that. Um, she didn't recognise that he had a will of his own, um, and she, ref well, eventually, um, the um, he, future Duke of Ormond, he was the Marquis of Ormond at the time, who was the leading Protestant peer amongst the exiles in Paris, was sent by Charles to rescue Henry from Pontoise and to tell Charles's mother in no uncertain terms that she was to cease and desist. Um, otherwise, Henry might have literally been browbeaten, perhaps, into to changing his religion. I, I'm not sure he would have succumbed, actually. I think he was personally too strong. But anyhow, having been dismissed by his mother, he joined his brother James as a soldier of fortune in the Spanish army. And he returned with James and Charles in 1660 from the Netherlands. He took his seat in the House of Lords um, and contracted smallpox in September 1660, just a few months after his return and died. So his story is immensely sad too. It's, it's, my book is not a tale of happy endings. I think it's fair to say, not at all. But I've always felt, I think, that the the story of these little-known Stuart princes and princesses, because I, I think if you stop most people on the street, they'd say Charles I, yes, Charles II was his son. And probably if you pushed them, they've heard of James II and might acknowledge that he was from the same branch of the family, but the other children are simply unknown. That was Linda Porter. 
Royal Renegades, The Children of Charles I and the English Civil Wars is out now in the UK, published by Macmillan. And in the US, it's available now for the Kindle. And now it's time for this week's history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. Several historical buildings have been damaged by a fire in Exeter, which broke out on the city's Cathedral Green at 5am on Friday morning. The historic Royal Clarence Hotel, which dates back to 1769 and is described as England's oldest hotel, suffered significant damage. Its interior was destroyed due to the flames, and its facade is also expected to collapse further. Chief Fire Officer Lee Howell told the BBC, We're grateful no one has been hurt in this incident, but the community has lost a historic building which is a landmark of the city. We will continue to do everything we can to protect the heritage of this city. The cause of the fire is unknown. In other news, Kent University's Students' Union sparked controversy this week by choosing pop star Zayn Malik and Mayor of London Sadiq Khan to front its Black History Month campaign. The decision to promote the event using images of Malik and Khan, who both come from British-Pakistani backgrounds, triggered a social media backlash as many suggested the decision was misjudged or culturally insensitive. Black History Month's national organisers stated they were, quote, deeply disappointed with the move. Union President Rory Murray has since apologised for the decision, stating that, whilst we make every effort to include black and minority ethnic students on the planning for the month, clearly we haven't got it right on this occasion. Meanwhile, a waiter has knocked the thumb off a Roman sculpture at the British Museum. The townly Venus dates back to the 1st or 2nd century AD. It was damaged during a corporate party when the waiter, who was working for an external company, knelt underneath it and then stood up, hitting their head on its thumb. A spokesperson for the British Museum stated, We have taken the incident seriously and have retrained all individuals responsible for events. Our expert conservators have been able to restore the object and it has remained on public display. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking to Ben McIntyre about the wartime SAS and discovering the Nazis' fascination with drugs. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Music